where would we be today without the word it's an anchor in our life and we desperately need the word of god and thank you lord for giving us your word but we ask you tonight that you would speak through me the word of the lord under a mighty anointing and let it go forth in power and accomplish everything that it needs to do lord i pray that this even everybody that's going to be hearing this whether they're live or they're hearing this as a recording whether they're watching a video or driving down the road however they're hearing this let your holy spirit move upon every one of us tonight and give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives or that your holy spirit touch our eyes and ears have eyes and ears of spirit that we're able to see and hear what we couldn't have before but the holy spirit enables us gives us the grace to do so that your holy spirit would give us such good fertile soil of hearts and minds or that that we'll really be um, locked in and in tune with what you're saying. We're not going to be distracted. And Lord, you'll speak to me everything that needs to be spoken like living seeds of truth that are sown into that good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit. And these seeds will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. And Lord, we ask you that, that you would cause your word to go out like um, a washing of the water of the word to purify us. Lord, let it go out as a bright, shining light of truth dispelling the darkness and lies the deception of the enemy and bringing divine revelation lord let it go out as a sword that penetrates even places that are difficult but because of the power of that rhema word under an anointing it will penetrate through where it needs to get and let your word be a mighty hammer that breaks down every stronghold every religious stronghold and brings freedom and we thank you, Lord, let the word of the Lord, let your Holy Spirit just breathe upon this, that it will blow out among the nations of the earth, and it will go forth and accomplish everything you sent it forth to do, getting where it needs to be and accomplishing what it needs to. It'll be effective. And Lord, we thank you for it. Let your angels watch over the word. And we know Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So Lord, we submit this unto you, and we resist the devil. We bind up anything of the enemy that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to accomplishing what it's supposed to do try to hinder any person that's going to be hearing this in the name of jesus we agree together as a church and we bind you now we command you to back off right now in jesus name out and lord let your angels just clear that out let there be freedom let there be breakthrough and lord we thank you for it we believe and we expect it in jesus name we pray amen all right so i'm going to deal with the subject of Purim tonight as we look at the life of esther and I'm going to end up talking about, behold, our bridegroom comes. But before we get to that, I'm going to talk about a few things with Purim. We know some of the traditions about there's costume parties. There's people that, that put on plays and act it out. We know there's these triangular cookies, hamantashen cookies, celebration, joy, rejoicing. But there's a real deep message in this. And I encourage people during this time to read the book of Esther in the Bible. It is a very powerful story. And I believe that this sermon will help highlight some things that need to be talked about. But let's open up with this. Ephesians 6.10, a very common scripture. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, look at this, rulers, powers, world forces of darkness spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places therefore take up the full armor of god so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done all to stand stand firm so another translation would say our fight is against principalities and powers 
a wickedness in the heavenlies. Let me say that again. Our fight is not against people. It's against principalities and powers and wickedness that's in heavenly realms over geographic territory. So our battle here in Dallas is not against each other. It's certainly not against other churches. It's not against people. It's really against the prevailing spirit over this region that has many under its captivity. You know, many times people say that the hearts of the people are hard, and, and there's some truth to that. But in actual fact, the truth is that Satan has people in bondage. And if we can get through the warfare and really persistently pray and fast until things get broke loose in the heavens over a region and God really starts moving, you'll see that even the hardest of hearts will melt in the presence of God. And even the darkest places will be filled with the light. Even the people that, that others thought, man, they'll never be saved. They'll be in the altar weeping before the Lord. But it takes the battle is a spiritual battle against the satanic realm, okay? And many times the devil wants us at each other, doesn't he? And so as long as God's people are divided, it hinders things. But if we can come together and pray, you know, it's funny because I've worked with prayer ministries for a long time. And it's just so many times I just want to just facepalm because, well, every time it seems like we have some kind of a larger prayer gathering, it's supposed to be about prayer. We're there to pray. And you'll, it never fails that somebody grabs the mic and starts giving some announcement about something they're doing. Kills the flow. But if we can all come together and really pray, earnestly pray, every great revival, people want these different formulas. I hear it all the time. People have got it figured out. You know, that if you do this, revival will come. If you do that, I'll tell you historically how revival came. Every time I've studied church history, this is not debatable with me. This is how it happened. There's always a group of people that desperately cried out to God in prayer and fasting and humbling themselves, repenting of their own sin. They came in unity and cried, and usually it was a small group of people, and heaven came down. And when God came down, he didn't just touch a handful of people. He shook regions, sometimes nations. That's how revival comes. It's not the formulas of man. It's not religion. It's not trying to do all these things to try to force God's hand. It's being desperate and crying out in prayer and fasting. All right, so let me talk a little bit about the spiritual warfare. You can't really talk about Purim without looking at this enemy called Amalek. So I'm going to talk about Antichrist spirit, which is basically Amalek. Okay, so just follow me with this. So let me give you a few scriptures and explain this. But see, in the story of Purim, there's an evil man named Haman, who the Bible calls him an Agagite, but he was of the Amalekites. That was his lineage. And so this is a really interesting study to look at this. So... Let me read a few scriptures. It says this in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18. Moses told Israel, he said, Remember what Amalek did to you as you were leaving Egypt. He happened upon you and struck the weakest people trailing behind when you were exhausted and he did not fear God. One of the things about the enemy, Amalek is really probably 
the most hated enemy Israel had and the one that God was determined to completely wipe out. But have you ever noticed that the devil is so wicked that the way that he will target God's people is he'll try to find some kind of a weak place in your life. And he'll zero in on that weak place and keep hammering away and until somebody struggles and falls in that area. And that's the spirit of Amalek, if you will. That's targeting the weak. It was like Israel, when they were leaving, uh, the Bible says those that were weak and tired kind of trailed behind. They began to fall behind, and Amalek happened upon them and struck them. So the enemy's after your weaknesses. That's why we need God's grace. And many times if the devil's going to target a group of people, he'll try to find a weak, vulnerable point of entry in that group. He'll find somebody that has Jezebel tendencies. Maybe they're not actually doing anything at the time, but he'll begin to work on them. Pretty soon they start getting more and more controlling, more and more divisive, causing more and more problems, and then you have to deal with it. But Satan will try to find some kind of a weak point of entry and he'll target that area. So Amalek also in Exodus 17 verse 8, the Bible says Amalek attacked Israel out of pure hatred. Remember the woman in Revelation 12 that was about to give birth, how Satan attacks things at their infancy stage many times. So Exodus 17, 8, Amalek attacked Israel out of pure hatred. How many of you guys can feel in the world today in America that there's, that there's some kind of a spirit that's behind the scenes using certain people certain groups but you can feel there's a pure hatred toward the things of god coming from that group and again revelation 12 when the woman was about to give birth the dragon stood there to destroy the child so there's something about the devil wants to target things even at their infancy stage see the devil knows that if something is birthing that god's doing it's something new a lot of times it's like an infant and Satan wants to hit it at that infancy stage because if he can't stop it he knows that if it grows into maturity and strength he'll never stop it so he's trying to hit things early on to shut it down so it'll never actually reach fruition it's really like a spirit that's behind abortion it's trying to kill something early on in the womb so if you take out that child, how's that child ever going to fulfill their destiny, you see? And God said to Moses, write this remembrance in the book. Listen to what God said. I will surely erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Look at how serious God is about this. He said, I will surely erase even the memory of Amalek. An interesting study is this. The Jewish Midrash states that when Esau was getting old, he called his grandson Amalek. And he said to him, I tried to kill Jacob, but I was unable to. Now I am entrusting you and your descendants with the important mission of annihilating Jacob's descendants, the Jewish people. Carry out this deed for me. Be relentless and do not show mercy. So, according to the Jewish Midrash, that this was an assignment from hell against God's people. 
Amalek was described as from Esau, but was also described as first among the nations, which is interesting because Amalek would not have actually been the first among the nations. But I believe this, if you can hear me tonight, I believe that Amalek speaks of the spirit of this world, Babylon. While God's people are the heavenly city of God. So in that sense, Amalek speaks of the first among the nations because it is like an antichrist spirit that is translated down through the ages in different forms through different people in different ways to try to stop the coming of the Messiah. Think about it. This was the principal spirit that was behind Cain murdering Abel. I'm talking right off the bat. Satan knew God said, I'm sending a righteous one through the woman. And you know that Satan had to think because the prophecy was to Eve. He had to think it's going to come from her. And so whenever um, Cain and Abel, when Abel came forth and he was a righteous man, Satan was terrified that this must be the Messiah. And so he stirred up Cain to kill him. See, the whole point of that story being told to us is not just about two brothers quarreling, but there's something behind the scenes, a greater picture, if you will, of Satan wanting to stop the coming of the Messiah. That is an antichrist spirit. That's why you have to wonder, what is it that, if you look at a map and... <laughs> and you spread out the globe before you and you lay it out and you look at it, Israel is this little tiny little nation. I mean, like the size of Finland. You don't ever hear about Finland in the news. It's like the size of like what, New Jersey. I mean, it's this little bitty sliver of land. Why in the world is it always in the news? Why in the world does the United Nations continually deal with problems? Why is that little piece of land surrounded completely all the way around with enemies it's an antichrist spirit that is trying to stop the coming of jesus christ that antichrist spirit that's trying to stop the messiah from coming to the earth because satan knows that when Jesus comes, he's coming to Israel. He's specifically coming to Jerusalem to sit on the throne of his father, David, to rule the nations. And Satan's trying to do everything in his power to stop the coming of the Messiah. So you have this Antichrist spirit. You have this, you could, the anti-Semitism is rooted in an Antichrist spirit for the same reason. Because the, Satan knows that Jesus is coming back to Israel. And so he's got to destroy the Jewish people. He's got to destroy that nation. He's got to stop the coming of the Lord. That's really what it's about. And so you see, down through the ages, there was different forms that this, this thing took. And Amalek basically personifies this. And you see that in the story of Esther, how Haman... He was of the Amalekites, rose up once again to try to annihilate God's people. And if he could have accomplished this goal completely, how would the coming of the Messiah have ever taken place? 
And it was very interesting, if you study this out, how God assigned King Saul to completely... Now, listen to what God said. See, when you understand all of these scriptures, this makes more sense. But God told through the prophet Samuel to King Saul, he said, I want you, I'm giving you an assignment. He said, I want you to attack the Amalekites and I want you to completely wipe them out where there's no living being. I want you to wipe out all of them, all their animals, everybody, completely. And Saul did not do it. And so God ripped the throne from him and gave it to David, but Saul did not fulfill his mission. If Saul had done that, then how in the world would there be a Haman? Do you see what I'm saying? We have to fully obey the Lord because Saul's failure in his rebellion created a huge problem down the road for the nation. But in Esther 3, 1, it says, After these events, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, a descendant of Amalek, to authority. And so this was the great enemy that rose up once again, Amalek. It was basically a spirit of Antichrist that was working through what we call anti-Semitism, but ultimately to stop the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. In Exodus 16, verse 17, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Numbers 24, 20, Balaam calls them first among the nations. So conquering Amalek, Joshua actually fought and won in his generation as Moses had his hands raised in the air. Remember that against Amalek. Now let me jump down to the last couple things I want to talk about with this. This is a perpetual enemy. Now I want you to see that we're, we're fighting this same enemy today in American society because there's a very antichrist spirit that's at work right now in America probably like no other time in our nation's history but you're seeing it through like a liberal type of agenda and it's it's moving it's slithering through the political realm it's slithering through the media and you'll see even people in the media that mock and make fun of our vice president's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is demonic it's, it's an Amalek-type spirit. You're seeing it through groups that are trying to use the court system and trying to manipulate things. They could go down the road to another bakery, but they're targeting Christians. It's an Antichrist spirit. They're going specifically to those places targeting them. And see, there's something, just like it was in the days of Esther, there's something that's trying to, tar it's an antichrist spirit, trying to remove any symbol. If they see a cross, across a field, down the road, they just can't stand it. Gives them some kind of a panic attack. And so they've got to have, they got to go to the court system. They got to do whatever they can to remove the cross. Anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, or a symbol of him has got to be purged and erased from our culture. Tell me that's not an antichrist spirit. If it's not, then what is it? It's Amalek. But in the days of Esther, God moved in such a way that it turned everything completely around. That's why I love the story of Esther because it wasn't just that Israel survived, but God turned something that would have been the greatest of tragedies into a holiday. 
And like I was saying earlier in the service, not in this sermon, but you know, the very, so Haman's estate, all of his land, his estate, he had built gallows to kill Mordecai on that estate. He had 10 sons. He was very wealthy and powerful. It would have been a very wealthy estate. That very estate that Satan was using ended up that Haman was hanged on the, his own gallows. That estate was given to who? Esther. And Esther gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai has the keys to that, the very estate that he was supposed to die on. He ends up owning it. Now tell me God didn't turn that thing completely around. Where Haman died on his estate and Mordecai took possession of it. So God has a way of turning things around so much so that it's like the spoils of war. You end up inheriting what the devil tried to destroy you. Don't be surprised if that's the very thing that you end up triumphing and conquering and overcoming and, and God doing an awesome thing in that area. So Esther 2.12 we know the story of Esther that, you know, is interesting for such a time as this. God, knowing the future, knew that Israel needed Esther there. And so God was behind the scenes at work. But if you read the, the book of Esther, Vashti, the, the queen, ended up being removed from power to make room for Esther. So God already knew that there would need to be a deliverer in place. And it would need to be somebody like her that had the king's heart. And so he already had in position this woman for such a time as this. That she was a plant by the Lord in that place at that time that through her life would come deliverance. See, people don't think about this sometimes, but God knows the future so much so that he has strategically placed you where you are. He strategically placed prayer ministries and and hubs of revival and strategic places so that when it's for such a time as this when the time comes they're in place to be used where they're supposed to be used in the way that they're supposed to be used so after Vashti was removed from power King Xerxes was really wanting a bride so we know that he searched the land Esther was his favorite and it says this after the end of the 12 months under the regulations for women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows for six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices cosmetics for women isn't it interesting that under the law of Moses that Moses had to create this special anointing oil that he had to use to pour over Aaron and his sons he had to mix it with the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on their garments he had to take this special anointing oil and go into the Holy of Holies and anoint the ark back out, anoint everything in the holy place, anoint the outer court. And this was the very anointing oil where the glory of God came down in such an awesome way. It's interesting because that oil was made with pure olive oil, but it had myrrh in it and it had cassia, calamus, and cinnamon which all of that is basically like those of you that are familiar with the spice cinnamon. It's basically like putting a lot of that in the oil. So it's thick and it has that, those grains in it. Isn't it interesting that you see here for the days of beautification that you see that there's oil and spices. 
See, there's something prophetic here. Just like in the story of Esther, obviously Haman is a picture and type of the Antichrist. Isn't it interesting? I'm just speaking here, seeing things on a deeper level, a prophetic level, that Haman had ten sons. And in the book of Revelation, the Bible talks about this beast has seven heads, but ten, or seven heads, but ten horns. Isn't it interesting? The Antichrist will come to power, and he's going to have ten land masses, principalities that are aligned with him. But what is going to be the target? I know Christians will be the target, but what's going to be the ultimate target of the Antichrist in those ten principalities? Israel to stop the coming of the Lord so again you're seeing this down through the ages you're seeing this Amalek translating to stop the coming of the Messiah that's why God this seems to be the most hated enemy and that God said it would be fought from generation to generation because he knew that Satan all the way down to the end was going to be trying to stop the coming of the Lord even down to the tribulation time the last three and a half years were to target Israel to stop the coming of the Lord. But God had Esther in place. And prophetically speaking, symbolically speaking, Esther was being saturated with the anointing oil. See, I remember when Benny Baker came... He's, he says things that I really, I really pay attention to where he's praying for people and just different things he says because he's a very prophetic man. And I remember one time he was saying to you guys as he was praying for people, he said, you guys are being saturated in the anointing. It's interesting that Aaron and his sons had to dwell in that holy place when they were ordained for seven days, they had to stay there for a length of time because they were being saturated with the presence of God to go into the Holy of Holies, what Aaron was. Does that make sense? There's something about this saturation with the anointing. Well, Esther was being saturated with the oil. And she was being prepared in that to meet with the king. There was something about this. That oil had a fragrance. It's like the Bible says that through us we spread the fragrance of Christ. There was something about this preparation time with Esther that prophetically speaks of you and I spending time in the presence of God, having the oil of the Lord poured over us, that we are being made ready to go into the Holy of Holies, but also we're being made ready to meet the Lord in the air. But Esther was a great intercessor. I'm just going to read this. Esther was a picture and type of the bride of Christ being prepared to meet the bridegroom for the marriage supper of the Lamb. She went through cleansing beauty treatments and water and oil that made her ready to meet the king. Just like we have these deep consecration services and, and where we take communion in a special way, anoint people with oil and water immersions available for those that want it. Most people come, but you've experienced this you know what i'm talking about there's such a presence of god in it there's such a glory i know during those times that as people are being immersed they're not there because they they got saved yesterday they're there just because they're saying lord deeply consecrate me and the presence of god is so strong in that water that we've immersed people 
and they couldn't even hardly get back up because of the glory. And there have been reports of people that, yeah, I struggle with this and I don't anymore. I was healed of this. I was set free of this. What's God doing here? He's getting us ready to meet him in the air one day. He is deeply sanctifying us. It's a process. The second thing is Esther was a powerful intercessor. It was the prayers and the fasting of God's people, but it was also Esther approaching the king to intercede for the people of God to turn the situation around. We all know the stories. So God appears to Abraham. Why did God even appear to Abraham and tell him, I'm going to destroy Sodom? God wanted Abraham to stop him. But God was saying it's so wicked that if I don't do something, it's going to spread like gangrene throughout all these other regions. It's going to destroy people's lives. And God was like, the cry from this place is horrible. But Abraham began to cry out to God. He said, and eventually, we know the story. Lord, if you can just find ten righteous... The Lord said, I'll spare him for 10. He, God wanted an intercessor. Abraham rose up as a great intercessor. His, think about this for a moment. His intercessory prayers were so powerful. One man that it affected Sodom and Gomorrah. It affected an entire nation, a region. One man's prayer as an intercessor. Esther, after spending time being washed with the water and being purifying and saturated with that oil that one person turned things so powerfully that it affected an entire nation i think about the story of moses you know god had had enough god got worked up after 10 times of them testing him in the wilderness and all this and well this was actually at the golden calf but god was so upset about the golden calf he told moses he said i'll I am going to wipe these people out. I'm going to start over with you. And I'll make you a greater nation than they ever would have been. You know, and he was, he was worked up. But Moses spoke to God as an intercessor. And he began to plead for Israel. And Moses' prayers, one man, his prayers were so powerful that it saved a nation. So Esther, in a sense, is a great intercessor. When she approached the king, she was saying, please spare these people. And she approached on their behalf. See, an intercessor is a go-between. And she went representing that nation, just like I think about Daniel in the Bible as he approached God in prayer in Daniel chapter 9, I believe, where he said this. He said, Lord, Daniel was righteous, but he said, Lord, we have sinned before you forgive us of our sins and the sins of our fathers and as he went as a great intercessor daniel did god heard daniel's prayers and sent an angel to minister to daniel and reveal things to him but also daniel's prayers were so powerful it was connected to god's word i understand that but God set in a series of events in motion to where King Cyrus began to send them back, Ezra and Nehemiah. We know the outworking of it, but it was Daniel's discerning of God's timing, understanding the word of God, and coming as a great intercessor. There's something about... So let me tell you something. Intercessory prayer is so powerful. The Bible calls us to be salt in the earth. 
If salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. But God has called us to be salt and to keep that savor about us. And I remember, what did Jesus say? If it loses its saltiness, if it loses its flavor, it's worthless. What? To be thrown out and then trampled underfoot. Now, Derek Prince taught this and always stayed with me. He was saying, the church is called to be salt in your nation. And he says, listen, he said, whenever you come together, 1 Timothy says this, first of all, pray for kings and rulers, those in authority, that you can live peaceful, godly lives in righteousness. This is pleasing unto God and that many can be saved. He said, first of all, and Derek said, in most places, it's not even last of all. But he said this, he said, because if the church will really, truly pray like we should, he said it will cause that the leadership over regions, over nations, will be favorable toward Christianity, the furthering of the gospel. It'll make things conducive. But if you, if you lose your saltiness, he said, don't be surprised if now there's going to be leadership coming into place that want to crush you underfoot. They want to stomp out every trace of Christianity. The power of an intercessor. We're living in a time, I'll deal with this a little bit more next week, but we're living in a time like no other time in our nation's history. And there's many things I could say about this, but this is the main point I want to make right now. People seem to be so addicted to entertainment. My wife and I were talking about this. People, they go from television to the computer to the tablet to the stereo to this to the iPod to that to this and because of that it's created some kind of an addiction in their life where they feel like they always have to be entertained all the time prayer is nothing like sitting around being entertained it requires discipline I, I personally feel that in some ways Satan is behind a lot of this and he's trying to get a generation not in prayer. He's trying to get them constantly wanting to be entertained. And then they, because of that, the church world is becoming more entertainment-based to get people to come and to entertain them. You see? But people that are going to grow spiritually are going to have to learn to turn off all the entertainment and to seek the Lord. And that takes some discipline. But once you really find the relationship and you learn how to pray, it's, it's far more awesome than any entertainment ever could be. But those that are addicted to entertainment all the time, it's like some kind of a hurdle that they've got to get over to be able to seek the Lord. Does that make sense? It's like an addiction that they've got to cast down and they've got to start disciplining their mind. Their mind has been very passive where they're always just kind of just blanked out, staring at something that's constantly moving in front of them, and they're used to that. And now they've got to, to focus their mind and read something and pray and seek the Lord, and their mind is used to being passive instead of being active. This is a hurdle in this generation. And you, you find people start to pray and constantly they're wanting to get on their phone 
and trying to read something, the next text, the next Facebook post. There's something there that's constantly trying to mess with their head. I believe this could be one of the greatest hindrances to prayer in our generation. But we've got to learn to make time to put everything aside and seek the Lord and get back to the way things need to be as far as being prayer warriors and intercessors. God can literally, here's the third point I want to make. God can literally turn an impossible situation around in just a few days. The people of God were going to experience genocide, but in just a few days, tragedy turned into a holiday that we still celebrate today. That's another awesome message about Purim. That, man, things look so bleak and so horrible in the natural God's people, Mordecai, had ripped his garments. He was wearing sackcloth and ashes. He was crying out to God. Everybody in Israel that throughout, scattered it throughout the land that heard about this decree were, were desperate. And Mordecai tells Esther, don't think that you're going to escape this. If we perish, we all perish. He said, God's put you. Who knows if you're not there for such a time as this? You better do something. But they were desperate. They were crying out to God. And isn't it interesting, after three days of fasting, that such a breakthrough came that in just a matter of a couple days, it goes from tragedy to a holiday. Only God could do that. Turning an impossible situation around. And the last thing I would say is this. God can use people that feel like they're nobodies. Esther was certainly no one that would have been considered special. God took a nobody and used them in an incredible way. God seems to delight in doing that. King David was the guy nobody would have picked. Even his own father, his brothers, nobody would have picked David. And I believe that this is because it brings God great glory to use nobodies. Because whenever people see that, they realize it wasn't you, it was God that did that. So Esther was just this humble maiden. I mean, there was nothing about her special other than the fact that she was pretty and caught the eye of the people that were going through trying to find some kind of a bride for the king. But there was nothing about her that was extraordinary. You don't read about her great lineage. You don't read about any great super education or anything. She just simply, God put her in that place and used her in an extraordinary way. So what I'm saying is, remember this, if you feel like a nobody, those seem to be the very people God uses extraordinary. And recovering all is we're talking about the Amalekites, remember? The Amalekites were the very ones that raided Ziklag and plundered David's camp. Do you remember that? David lost everything. Uh, you know, his wives, everything. All of his men lost everything. They came back. Their whole camp, all their families, all their possessions were gone. It was the Amalekites that did that. Keep that in mind. The Amalekites seemed to be the principal spirit behind stealing destiny in people's lives. They raided Ziklag. They plundered David's camp. But David asked the Lord. He put on the ephod that... Uh, you know the priest had Ahimelech I believe was with him I can't remember for sure but anyway he had the the high priest garments that he took from the city of Nob he was there David said bring me the ephod he was desperate 
because his men were going to stone him. And so he puts on the high priest's garments. He begins to seek the Lord. The Lord spoke to him, go, hunt him down. God said, you will recover all. But David had to go after those Amalekites. And let me tell you something I have found. You know, I talk about seeking the Lord. You cannot be passive. The Bible says that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, the violent take it by force. That's not physical violence. Remember how I opened this sermon? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual aggression that you're, you're going to go after God no matter what. You're going after God. Come hell or hot water, come Jezebel spirits, come, come principalities and powers, come evil people, whatever, I've made up my mind I'm going after God. And secondly, you better chase down your enemy until you take the head off that thing. David, it was interesting because if you read the story of David, you know, Goliath in every way had every possible advantage. We know the situation. But David said, I don't really come at you with swords and spears and all of that. I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he said, God's going to give me this victory. And David, this little puny guy compared to this giant, goes, listen, goes running at Goliath. There was an aggression there. David said, I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord. And David went running at the giant. Slung the stone into his forehead he falls but david didn't leave it there because david probably thought well in a you know in a little while this guy might get back up so david takes goliath's sword and literally cuts his head completely off and holds up the head of the giant you better be aggressive about your amalekite whatever is trying to steal your destiny whatever it is trying to to destroy your life you better chase that thing down until its head is completely off If David had been passive, he would have never recovered all. He would have never defeated Goliath, and he certainly wouldn't have overtaken these Amalekites. You cannot be passive in the kingdom of God. You have to be aggressively in pursuit of God. If you ever get in a place where you're passive, don't be surprised if you don't start dying spiritually. We're always supposed to be moving from glory to glory. This is a big concept in my life is I've seen too many people for too long that are too passive. They get out of prayer. They stop pursuing God. And pretty soon they're in some kind of a spiritual rut. They're dead and dry. They're not progressing any longer. You know the, the story many times we've all heard this about the Dead Sea. Everything flows into the Dead Sea, but it doesn't flow back out. So hence the name the Dead Sea. And the thing is, once we stop forward movement, we stop that flow in and through our lives, you become like the Dead Sea. You start dying. There has to be a seeking the Lord. If churches stop seeking the Lord, pretty soon they just become a religious institution. And they have to turn to different things to pacify the people it has to it has to just become a social thing an entertainment thing because you won't have anybody if it doesn't because they lost the presence and power of god church has got to be on a pursuit individual people have got to be pursuing the lord this comes in prayer as we begin to go after god with all of our hearts and as i've been talking lately you know even to the boys about this saying about seek the lord you in your own life 
You can't ride somebody else's walk with God. You have to seek the Lord for yourself. Make room for prayer. Discipline yourself to pray. And begin to pursue the Lord. If you don't have a prayer life, you don't know how to pray and all that, don't try to go in there and pray for several hours because you're just going to get frustrated. Start, you know, with 15, 20 minutes. Let it grow to 30. Let it grow to an hour. Then let it grow beyond that. But make room for it and begin to pursue the Lord. I'm going to tell you, the Bible says, seek the Lord with all your heart. If you seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. But there has to be that seeking. That has to be a pursuit in your life. If we lose that, we'll die spiritually. Esther understood that she had to be aggressive. And she said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fast and pray for three days. She didn't even drink water. That's hard to do for three days. I'm going to fast and pray for three days. You get everybody else to fast and pray too. And then I'm going to go before the king against protocol. If I die, I die. But I'm going to go forward. I'm going to pursue this. And she began to cry out in prayer and fasting toward the Lord. She was seeking the Lord. And then she went and did what she needed to do. It was like an aggressive thing. She moved forward. And because she did, she's got such a great victory that we still talk about it today. It ended up being canonized in the word of God. So, Lord, we thank you for this word tonight. We thank you. Help us, Lord, to be powerful intercessors that see things shift in our region, in our nation because of our prayers. Lord, help us to spiritually be aggressive that we're going from glory to glory, that we're not in a place where we get stuck in a rut, but Lord, we're, we're pursuing you. We should be further along in 2020 than we were in 2019. We should never look back and say, I used to be closer to the Lord. I used to be more on fire. That should never happen. We should be more on fire today. We should be more hungry today. We should be learning new things today. We should be growing spiritually today. Lord, help us to keep going forward from glory to glory. And that we're going to take the head off our enemy, our Amalekite, whatever that is. If it's a personal battle, a besetting sin, whatever it is that's trying to hinder you and hold you back. Lord, help us to take the head off that giant that we can go full on into our destiny in God, what you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you for your word. Let it be sealed in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever you get done shutting things down back there, if you would just play that iPod. and Listen, those that want prayer tonight, there's something stirring tonight. It's, it's, um, it's, you can just feel it in the atmosphere. Here at Purim, there's something up. And what my daughter heard during prayer today, the winds of change blowing, breakthroughs are happening, don't get weary. There's something going on in the spirit realm.